You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello, everyone, all of you humanists, even Christian ones. I'm talking to my friend Nathan today, and my name's Trip, and we're going to be talking about the most exciting thing that happened to your 48 hours where you binge watch this show. Where your Netflix account's finally earned its worth. We're going to talk about House of Cards. Um, and uh, Nathan, hold on a minute. I'm going to tap my computer in the hopes that you hear uh, Frank's kind of notorious tap. There you go. There you go. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. And Christian so, Humanist listeners, this is, as you might have already guessed, a crossover episode between Christian Humanist profiles and homebrewed Christianity. So... We're going to be talking about House of Cards because Tripp and I both love this show. Uh, we're going to be digging into, I hope, some of the God questions that arise there, but also some of the questions of politics and of what it means to be married in a situation where power rather than love is the rule of the land. And um, since it is a crisscross episode, I mean, y'all don't get the video, but we are both wearing all of our clothes backwards. Uh, and uh things get out of hand we'll start jumping (laughs) some of them do indeed try to rhyme but they can't rhyme like this oh no that's true (laughs) um so if if in the next five minutes we can fit any more uh crisscross references (laughs) we'll work on it i'm pretty Uh, much out (laughs) oh that's that's good because if if you if you we took longer than five minutes we might end up missing the bus (laughs) wow Ooh, B-side, B-side references. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this season in House of Cards, um, I, I mean, I went into it thinking, what in the world are they going to do now that Frank and, Ke- and Claire are actually in the White House? Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- what were you expecting when you saw the, the season start? Like, I mean, at the end of last season, I was like, oh, no, he won. He's here. Where'd my show go? Right. And moreover, you know, uh, Stamper is dead. So, I mean, one of my favorite characters is gone. I mean, how am I going to keep going without Stamper on the show? Uh, now, of course, you know, both of us got surprised because there's a, there's actually a lot to do once Frank Underwood is president and once, uh, you know, Doug Stamper turns out not to be dead. So I guess we should say spoiler alert right from the outset, although if you've watched okay. more than two minutes, you know that Stamper didn't die. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to spoil the heck out of this season. So if you've not watched it, go binge it, then come back and listen. Yeah. And, the, and in w- what I found kind of unique about this season is if, um, uh, if, if in the past seasons you had like this kind of a haunting sickness about the relationship between, uh, Frank and Claire, where you, where you see this like, insipid kind of uh deviousness running through kind of like the climb to get there now like certain parts of the stuff you always thought were underneath the covers are like on vibrant display oh and, yeah yeah and in writing wise this season actually goes and tackles all sorts of very contemporary political situations and um contemporary politic bits be it um uh stuff with like um uh, gay rights, Russia, um, the different things behind um, uh, uh, treaties, 
Um, they dealt with uh, stuff with Israel. Um, there's a there's a sense that that uh, this season, even though Frank gets uglier and uglier, he also gets more and more attractive because he actually accomplishes something in all of these different dead end areas that we currently have in our politics. Right, right. Although, I mean, his accomplishments, I mean, and this is one of the running themes in this season. I mean, they are more and more subject to the turns of fortune uh, as each one, you know, comes into place and then disintegrates in front of him. And I mean, in that respect, I mean, you know, before we started recording, you mentioned Machiavelli. You know, this show has always been fascinating to me because it runs that strange circuit between Machiavelli's view that, you know, Fortuna is something that the true man can control, and then Boethius's notion that Fortuna is inherently random and there is no permanent power to be had in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, well, I think like the, the the thing about Machiavelli and those kind of like famous lines in The Prince where he says stuff like, you know, it's best to be both feared and loved, but, mm-hmm. you know, if if one cannot be both, it's better to be feared than loved. And that everyone is going to go see what you appear to be. Few experience what you really are. And and these kind of choices to um, be fearful, to construct appearance, and all these things are um, are ruthlessly made. And the weird part about uh, Claire and Frank is you kind of have like a series of circles, right? You have like um, – their own relationship where there tends to be a much more um, openness about the constructedness of their relationship, reality and everything all the way down to how the season ends um, wondering about the future of their relationship. Like does our relationship exist outside of our shared commitment to constructing this reality? But then you have like their inner circle around them that, um, experience the world based on kind of the uh mythology they're putting forth um Mm. and like uh even when people who have been on the outside of it are brought in or people on the inside go out they still you see characters that have been in the inner circle not knowing how to relate to um his presidency um uh in any way other than through kind of that internal secret narrative Oh yeah, yeah, and and uh, Trip, I think it's a good opportunity to to segue to one of our listener questions. We put out an APB for questions to address on today's episode. One of them that I think relates to what you were talking about comes from Victoria Reynolds Farmer of the Christian Feminist Podcast, and here's what she poses to us: uh, Frank and Claire's sexual ethics are they, to use Dan Savage's coinage, monogamish or taking advantage of one another? And I, and I think it's one of those things that, uh, yes and no, and that's what's so cool about it is that it's contradictory, right? I mean, one of the things, you know, from the very early run of the very first season, you know, uh, Frank issues one of his famous statements to the camera, you know, I love that woman like a shark loves blood. Uh, so, I mean, this relationship that they have, yeah, it has to do with sex, but it also has to do with power, and it also has to do with, mutual advantage and you know it's precisely all those contradictions in there that makes it so interesting well maybe the craziest part of this whole season or well there are two parts that kind of come to mind one is 
when you find out that they have like an agreement to choose marriage again every so often. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, I mean, that blew my mind. Like, um, that, that they went into it, you know, knowing how each other kind of like with a level of honesty about the marriage few ever enter with, Mm -hmm. right? Like they knew here's what Frank's goals are. Claire wants to be a part of it, benefit from it and have her own, um, space in the power when his career's done. Mm -hmm. Um, they make the, was like every seven years, I think agreement to uh, get married, and you see them, right, renew their vows, walk out, and then head off and go their own ways to play their role in the big Underwood presidency. Mm-hmm. And um, well, maybe if we're moving on to others, just think, like, I'm interested, is that um, notion of continued choice uh, a positive thing or, or a negative thing? I think there will be plenty of people in culture would find the fact that um, someone has to actively choose the other person regularly a liberating thing. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting because it resonates with the scene in the Russian prison uh, with the character Michael Corrigan talking to Claire, right? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he in that moment of, you know, revelation, really, of, of Michael Corrigan's sort of understory, you know, he says that I don't think people were meant to be together for 50 years at a time. And, you know, Claire, of course, I mean, never stops playing the politician in that scene. It gets shaken up, you know, when Michael Corrigan commits suicide. But even in that moment, you know, she insists that, you know, her relationship with Frank is something that is perpetual, right? You know, it's it's not something that either one has any intent to depart from. Even though, like you said, I mean, we find out just a few episodes later that, in fact, they renew it every seven years just in case. Mm-hmm. Well, and in and that scene, if if people don't remember exactly what we're talking about, that's the gay rights activist who's in prison in Russia, and his partner is, you know, advocating um, um, in, in the outside world for release. And mm-hmm. his uh, the the incarcerated partner um, is part you know Claire and Frank work this kind of magical um, release you know special release for him and they're doing it because a political opponent is making political hay off uh, off the imprisonment of this individual mm-hmm. uh, you know they aren't doing it because you know for love or anything. And this wasn't on their agenda until his, you know, his uh, uh, primary opponent um, starts going around with the imprisoned guy's partner um, as like a visual example of what Frank's failures are. Um, and you also have the uh, pussy riot explosion in the um, White House, mm-hmm. and that we mean the punk rock group because that just sounded really bad. Yeah. Well- <laughs> <laughs> I'm- I mean, it's it, the the uh, characters are members of Pussy Riot and protests in the middle of this dinner. Um, well, you know, so she's sitting there in prison with the guy and is trying to say, like, you know, your your partner misses you and loves you and blah, blah, blah. And uh, she's just using um, all she can to get him out to help them look good. Mm-hmm. Um, so even these other Person's relationship 
um, isn't a relationship that is somehow sacred in a sense because it's loving and has inherent dignity to it or whatever, she sees a weakness in another person <laughs> because mm-hmm. sure. uh, they can be manipulated that way. Right. And what's so fascinating about that scene with Michael Corrigan is that, you know, he he's definitely written as a mirror to Claire's own marriage, right? You know, mm-hmm. he, he says, I mean, very, I mean, I would say chillingly, you know, I mean, we can't get divorced. It's bad for business. And I mean, you know, everyone who is watching the series knows, oh, he's really talking about Claire. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the other interesting part about it to me was um, Michael Corrigan is stronger than uh, Frank is in the face of of the uh, 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 Victor Petrov's kind of threat to, you know, throw Claire under the bus. Mm hmm. Like Frank gives in. Yes, Mike, he does. Mike yes, he does. It. Although, I mean, to be fair, I mean, you know, Corrigan and Frank Underwood, I mean, are both playing on Claire's impossible situation, right? Because, you know, Corrigan wants to make this revolutionary statement, right? You know, mm-hmm. but Claire, you know, says, you know, you have to make compromises. It's the nature of politics. And his retort is, it's not the nature of revolution. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, he. I think, and I mean, Trip. if you think I'm wrong here, you can tell me I'm wrong. I, I think that he is just as much as Victor Petrov and just as much as Frank Underwood playing on the fact that Claire doesn't have any good moves to make. I mean, in, in my view, in that scene, I mean, Claire is really the one in prison. Oh, and uh, um, did you wonder whether or not um, she knew what he was going to do? Oh, goodness. The way I read it is she was completely caught off guard by that. See, you watch uh, you watch Frank and Claire enough, and then you might think that uh, she knew this was an out and <laughs> and let him kill himself. Um, so, And I guess the only reason I say that, Trip, is because in the scenes that follow, she seemed, or at least, you know... Um, Oh, and the actress's name has escaped me. Robin Wright mm-hmm. play, played it in a way that seemed like that event genuinely shook her universe so that it wasn't part of her plan going into the, even going into that moment, I would say. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, the other, the other um, scene that kind of comes up to my mind uh, about Victoria's question around their sexual ethics um is that super weird sex power eye contact scene? Oh man, <laughs> go go ahead with that one. I'm a, you, you I, can have that scene. <laughs> I mean, I just it, it might just be one of the moments like I just felt dirty watching. Yeah, you know, um, you know it's like uh, uh, I I forget what had just happened to Frank, but it was one of the like clear significant failures. <clears throat> He had um, – oh, I think this is when the uh, the Democratic cabinet or whatnot are like, we don't want you to run or something right, like that. Right, right. The Speaker of the House and the chair of the Democratic National Committee, yeah, had just come to him and said, we don't want you to run. He tries to make a series of phone calls to try to basically fundraise his way out of it, and he fails. And then Claire finds him in a fetal position 
crying by his desk. And then you're right. I mean, it, it is in a series, you know, that has some really awkward sex scenes. This is the, I, I think takes this one the takes the prize. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you have like, you know, you're everyone's inner Freud just is like losing it. Cause you have like the husband in a fetal position and then, um, it's very much like, um, she's taking power of over him mm-hmm. and then giving him power through the whole sex act with like this really weird stare. And, um, she's just like, you're gonna enjoy this. You are Frank. But like, I mean, it, that's the kind of way it comes across. And I remember watching and going, Oh my God, I have no idea what to make of this. Um, <laughs> is it, do you wonder if this is like a normal activity in their house or, um, is this like what she, you know, like if you think of like your worst day and, and, uh, your partner like makes eye contact, kisses you, hugs you. And like, is this the equivalent in their relationship as sweet love making? Because maybe it is. Maybe that's what it looks like in this relationship. Yeah, and and the thing is because, you know, you've seen both of them in sex scenes with everyone but each other for the first two seasons. Well, sometimes you they have just to keep guessing. Body part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't you don't forget sometimes 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 they're they they're they share things with each other. But you do hear them discuss sex always as uh like a way of negotiating power. Right, like, um, the rules around Frank and other people are always, this is a tool in our tool belt, and as long as I know about it and this is what we use it for, that's fine. Mm -hmm. The problem, like, even within within her affair was not that she had sex with someone else. It was that she had sex with someone else not for the well-being of both of them. Mm -hmm. So, uh... But well, yeah. and also in a way that would have been publicly damaging had it come to fuller light in the press, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and the ghost of that, of course, comes up in this season, uh, in episode twenty-nine, when Victor Petrov comes in because I mean he, and by the way, I love this episode because I mean you get the Russian Frank Underwood, and you know you actually get a chess match that uh, Frank Underwood isn't just utterly destroying his enemies, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, Victor yeah, and Petrov. this is you know, it's it's the basic like it's it's Vladimir Putin character. Well, yeah, yeah, everyone knows that, but even more than that, you know, it is a, it's one of those Shakespearean scenes where, you know, the the powerful personality finally meets the match of the powerful personality, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, you know, Petrov comes in and you know invites him to this you know beach resort and says you know the the weather's cold but the women are warm. And, you know, Frank responds, well, I'm not sure Claire would approve of that. And Victor says, oh, don't worry. There's lots of artists. I'm sure she can find something she likes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's on. It is on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they uh, – they. do you wonder whether or not those two uh, actually ended up enjoying the fact that they were – jousting with the other one oh absolutely they did and and honestly as the audience i mean this is one of those things i've read some reviews and i've also listened to uh uh brooke gladstone's they're not finished with it yet but the first few episodes of her house of cards retrospective and Mm -hmm. i mean 
it, it's funny because she's bringing on, you know, these Washington journalists and old, you know, political consultants and so on and so forth. And they're just, you know, uh, they can't get over the fact that this would never actually happen. And I'm thinking that's just the point, <laughs> you know, that, that this is, you know, Shakespeare projected onto a Washington background. I mean, it's it's just great drama, you know. Uh, it is Frank Underwood finally meeting someone as mean as Frank Underwood, and you're just watching to see which one will make the mental mistake first. Mm. One of the questions that someone tweeted me yeah, and, um, was, like, do you think um, that the House of Cards is like an instruction manual for how we wish political leadership function today? Oh, um, I hope not. <laughs> or, well, uh, because and and here, I mean, the reason why I think it's because that's like the question people ask about the prince, uh, right? Like, you know, was Machiavelli writing this um, to explain to someone how to really be a real leader, or was he explaining just what our real leaders are doing in a way to reveal to them, to reveal to the populace what the problem was, and and so political philosophers debate about the intention of Machiavelli's the prince, and uh, and I feel like there is a sense, maybe not in the instruction manual form, but like that House of Cards has this like dual thing to it where you're like, yeah, like maybe someone should do this, maybe not kill as many people, but like <laughs> just not give it. Like I feel like he's like a honey badger of politics, and you could say like take one step back, look at the things he ends up getting done. Like you know, um, the uh, uh, getting laws around um, uh, uh, sexual abuse in the military, like actually ending for like sections of armed conflict, uh, conflict and avoiding war, um, uh, pushing through this jobs program, enforcing economic disparity on the uh, on the front burner. Like um, if you if you just saw the results of it. You could mm-hmm. see, easily see why he would be polarizing, but also he would have accomplished more than, you know, um, well, many presidents have in our in our present situation. Mm-hmm. And he sees uh, he takes this kind of um, uh, like a gridlock in Washington as like the perfect place for him to get exactly what he wants, not. Uh-huh an excuse to disengage or not try or any of that. He's like, well, if none of you are going to act, I'll do it for you. Um, it is a, you know, it becomes just like chess game. And, uh, but you know, and short of looking under the hood, you, (laughs) you wonder like, Oh, I was accomplishing something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess, and, and this actually leads to another pair of listener questions. One is from Isabel air. Uh, she asks, at what point does indiscriminate murder start to stretch credulity? And she says, you know, that's the question she always asks herself about House of Cards. And I guess, Trip, I mean, I, again, I just received this show differently than you, you were just describing because I think that the actual policy stuff is incidental to the psychological chess get matches. Uh, so, I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, America works, you know, he he loots FEMA in order to pay for a jobs program and he, you know basically trumps up a joint UN peacekeeping mission. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you could say that it's, you know, to forge some sort of peace between Israel and Palestine, 
but really, I mean, in the, in terms of the show, it strikes me as, you know, this is a way to claim the center of the board, right. To claim that territory so close to the Russian border. And, you know, that's what, um, Heather Dunbar, you know, gets the tutorial in why the middle East is so important to Russia. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not because, you know, they have any concern at all for Islam, Judaism, Christianity, any of the above. It's because of the range at which, you know, you could launch a strike into Russia. And so, I mean, in my mind, you know, whether any of that has any sort of correspondence to what happens in the world of Washington, D.C., as you get it through C-SPAN, isn't nearly as interesting as what's going on with the characters. Mm-hmm. Now, the other one, and I, I want to put this one to you because this is a show that I've not actually watched, but Kristen Philippic, who uh, Christian humanist listeners will know, is our beloved press liaison who gets us awesome interviews. But she poses this question. Not that long ago, the image of politics and pop culture was the West Wing. This may have been too liberal for your taste. I assume she means me. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but it certainly depicted fundamentally decent people who devoted their lives to politics because they are committed to the common good. Fifteen years later, we're talking about House of Cards at the water cooler. What does this say about our culture? And I mean, it's interesting because what I just heard from you was a very sort of West Wing approach to this show, right? It's like, wow, they're actually getting stuff done politically, whereas, you know, when you turn on C-SPAN, all you see is gridlock. What do you think? Well, I mean, it's a part of the way I even, like, read it that way is just because I – the West Wing seems to be hopelessly naive, right? Like, uh, it, See, I've it's never like, watched it, so I'll, I'll believe you. Go ahead and just say that it's naive. <laughs> well, it – I mean, it's it's like, uh, you know, like how many people find the processing of their family issues to actually run like their uh, like a sitcom where it all works out in 30 minutes and such. Uh-huh. Like so um, House of Cards is is mythology for people who believe in the myth of American democracy. Okay. Okay. I'm like it so really far. believes it. It really wants to show how it could work if you just were following this pure form of like uh, you know, like like debate and trust the system and reason and goodness in each people and coming together and that kind of thing. Um, I think that the anthropology in it is one that has yet to realize that human beings are depraved. <laughs> Okay. And okay. That um that uh the possibility or, or you know like Niebuhr even points this out quite well like there is more possibility for uh an individual to be a moral agent than the system they participate in. Mm-hmm. And we just have to recognize that our collective depravity or um our our ontological f-uppedness is uh um just just builds up on itself. And the West Wing is like an, an explanation of like why you don't break up with this mythology. To me, the the um, Frank Underwood is a hyperbolic example of why we should never imagine the West Wing will work. Right? Like, <laughs> all right, because his motivations and desires are are more accurate to the people who actually work in uh politics 
Like okay. two have made all the compromises that you have to make to get to any position of power in our system means you're already comfortable selling yourself and being sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all that goes into that to, uh, so if you were to imagine a way, a system that, uh, that only plays the game with such kind of broken pieces that, you know, to me the this is a way of imagining how it might actually accomplish something versus, um, versus the West wing. But I, I also think a lot of that's attached to America after 2008, right? Like if 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 uh, Barack Obama's election was the hope and change election, now we're and that was hope and change politics. Now we're kind of like post hope <laughs> and change. And um, well, yeah, yeah. And I I think that uh, this uh, series captures that because we know. Um, uh, that the Supreme Court has decided uh, to give more dignity to multinational companies than to middle class and lower class citizens in the United States when it comes to making political decisions. We know that the questions threatening our livelihood as a country and as a globe are questions that when answered, the very centers of power that fund elections and who buy allegiances of people in both parties – that their mechanisms of profit are going to be interrogated and limited or dismissed. And so, like, we know the game is rigged. And mm-hmm. so what what does it look like? What is the best – what's the, you know, the best possible situation in our present world? And this is so attractive because I think it's like – now, if – if this is what you could have in a post-hope situation for politics, it also begs the question, Could like, would we like to try to imagine something other than our present uh, political and economic organization? Mm-hmm. Like, is the system so insipid that the only ones who succeed are Frank and Claire that we might actually want – to have a different form of political organizing and a different economic system so that people with genuine character are the ones that have the opportunity to lead and accomplish something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, and as long as we keep telling ourselves naive stories like the West Wing or and, and things like that, we keep believing there's uh, that this, our current situation, is the exception to the rule. As opposed to this is actually what the rules are now that power has shifted from being centered in the people in democratically elected nation states to um, uh, you know post-national or multinational companies. Now the, aid, the power in the world is no longer at the nation state level voted on by citizens. It's located in our economic system, mm-hmm. at, which uses – Politicians, it gives them power as long as they cooperate. It uses religion as long as it cooperates. Mm-hmm. Um, if if the Middle Ages had like religion at the top, trying to negotiate the relationship between the public sphere, um, politics, and the economy, and, and the rise of modernity is the privileging of the democratic political over kind of like the private sphere of religion and and this 
bringing about good citizens and uh, good economic members and that kind of thing. Uh, it, what post-hope politics is, is being honest that now the center of power is not in the mass people figuring out how to regulate, redistribute wealth, and, and assert the rights of its people. The center of power is no longer political, it's economic. And well, I, what do we do with it? And, and what's interesting about House of Cards is that, you know, within the logic of this story, uh, we're still doing a little bit of mythologizing because you have these very, very powerful individuals. I mean, uh, you know, uh, shoot, I can't think of uh, – Ray- Raymond, that's his name, Raymond Tusk in season two, notwithstanding, mm-hmm. you have these characters who are elected officials who have this amazing power uh, so that their main um, counterbalances are other elected officials rather than being the corporate heads. Now, like I said, I mean, in season two, you've got a definite play by Raymond Tusk to be the power player and you know, sort of the representation of corporate America. But in season three... Uh, you know, I mean, I can't think of very many representations at all of corporate power coming to the fore there, right? I mean, the the main competitions are either between Democrats and Republicans, you know, uh, when you've got uh, Senator, oh, what is the senator's name, Sanchez? Yeah, well, and, but in my head, I'm thinking the guy who was Tusk's right-hand man is now the chief of staff. Yeah, yeah, point taken, point taken. Like, who does he have as his chief of staff? The money man's man. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean, that uh, what's the, I'd have forgot the guy's name. But uh, um, Seth is his first name, I think. Yeah, I mean, he has a couple of the best scenes. The one where he gets pulled um, in the car, and you know, he's like, "I'm the White House chief of staff," but they're pulling him because he's black and roughing him up and mm-hmm. going at him. And, oh, no, no, no. You're talking about <clears throat> Remy Danton. Yeah, Remy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking Seth must have been the actor's name. No, uh, no, no, no. Seth, Seth is the guy who found uh, Claire's journal in the first yeah. season. Anyway, yeah. go Rem- ahead. Go ahead. Remy Danton. Go ahead. Yeah, because he, he had worked for, um, uh, for the Underwoods at some point and then left for big money. And, uh, and then it worked against him, and now he's working for him again. Right, I had actually forgotten that part of Remy's storyline, so thanks for reminding me of that. The, uh, uh, but but Remy's character is real interesting because he is like tied into this system and loves being in the position so much. His conscience is regularly up for sale. Like mm-hmm. he can work with this rising star, then get bought out, but um, from the Underwoods by um, this this giant company, who then he becomes their lobbyist and manipulates people. And works behind the scenes, and then um, this situation of power. Then he develops uh, that kind of like romantic fling with uh, the senator, right, Jackie. Jackie, mm-hmm. and then um, then he gets brought back into the White House. Um, is the one that talks her into getting married so that she could be a vice presidential candidate, mm-hmm. um, and and. Uh, you know, then he gets pulled over, um, basically for driving while black, mm-hmm. and they don't believe him. Don't take any, you know, they eventually get embarrassed when they realize who he is. And then it's like at that point, like she's the only person he thinks could understand, mm-hmm. right? Like, what is it like to perform for money, 
perform for the president and then to be stuck in this um, uh, inherently less powerful place, a black person. Like she is doing the same thing for money and for the president and as a woman. And her feminine uh, like location is something that, that Frank's exploiting regularly. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's one of the two great Remy Danton scenes in season three. The other one, I think, is when Remy goes to the Oval Office and, you know, Frank brings him over to introduce him to Freddie, you know, who used to own the rib place, but now he's a landscaper at the, you know, the Rose Garden. Yeah. And, you know, when Frank has to go take a phone call, and I mean, I, I, I love this scene because Freddie basically says, hey, can you cover for me and tell me that my boss called me? I used to be able to go back to the kitchen, you know, when Frank started running on like he did so I could get away from him. And I, I think that certainly Remy getting pulled over is the signature turning point for that character. But in addition to that, I would say that, you know, that scene where he realizes that there is another black man who, by the way, in The Wire played the role of Remy Danton, which I love that casting decision. Uh, mm-hmm. All of The Wire crossovers I've been loving this season, by the way. But... uh you know, Remy Danton realizes that as far as Freddie is concerned, although Freddie doesn't have any of the power that Remy has always aspired to, he basically thinks of Frank Underwood as that white guy that talks too much. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and, and of course I've got fools on the mind because of the recent Christian Humanist podcast episode, but I mean, Freddie in that moment becomes the fool character in Frank Underwood's White House because he just spoke a truth that Remy Danton has never been able to face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, um, <clears throat> one of the, one of the things, um, that I, I was thinking of, if you mm-hmm. is trying to decide what, what would be the completely new thing when the season starts back? Yeah. Like if this one ends and he's, uh, you know, you, he walks into the office but this one starts back, and you're like all in straight out freak out mode. Everything's going crazy. Oh and yeah. Like they, you know, you're allowed to skip ahead a bit to to create a situation, and um, and one of them is the is is the uh, season opens in Freddy and Freddy's uh, barbecue joint is opened again, and Frank's and Frank's sitting there eating, um. <clears throat> with Remy and he won re-election and got the works program mm-hmm. and part of it was opening this place and 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 so you see them like him and Remy eating talking and he just says that the, like the opening line you see that you don't really hear anything till um till Freddie goes oh you know it's great to see you I got to get back to the kitchen oh yeah yeah that would be great <laughs> and um uh, that way you have like there's this whole setup for, oh, you know, he won the election and things and mm-hmm. he's going back to the kitchen. And then like halfway through that opening season, uh, they pass impeachment against Frank. <laughs> now, l- let me ask you this trip. Did you ever watch The Wire? No, no, no. Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, you got to watch it because it's phenomenal TV, but it's yeah. on my like things to do and my dissertations done. Okay, I, I can I can accept that. I can accept that. But the actor who plays Freddy in uh, House of Cards is the chief of staff and campaign manager to Tommy Carcetti, who's a you know white Irish Catholic Baltimore politician who is 
super ambitious and by the end of the series you know rises to phenomenal power because of the talents of his black advisor so i mean it like like i said the casting choice is just phenomenal to put freddie in that position mm-hmm. so what do you, what do you, what do you think's going to happen with doug oh gosh i don't know man i <laughs> You know, this is one of those things where, honestly, I'm still guessing at the end of season three where Doug's loyalties are going to fall, and I'm not sure that Doug himself knows. And one I of mean, the things, uh, even in the se- season, I guess we didn't mention it, is just like, uh, is Doug's dealing with his uh, drug addiction thing the whole time and recovery? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but the phone call that Frank makes. To the candidate, uh, the the who's the person he's running against? Uh, it is Heather Dunbar. Yeah, when he calls Dunbar, when he realizes the um that you know she had put him back in the game, mm-hmm. and it kind of set off this chain reaction. That was like one of the few times you think he might have actually done something nice. Like yeah, you're, yeah. You're trying to decide like, well, why is it? that he really loves Doug because mm-hmm. you know, he calls for that. He could have easily, I mean, he has enough on Doug that he could have Doug ended. Oh, absolutely. Once. Yeah. Doug also knows that he has no problem killing anyone, which mm-hmm. uh, is always a, a good way to make power clear in a situation. Right. And, and also, by the way, I mean, it's one of those glorious Shakespearean elements to this show. I mean, yes, I recognize vice presidents of the U S don't push people off of subway platforms as everyone in America has stated about house of cards. That's not the point. It's Shakespeare. Just ride with it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you, you know, when, when, when vice presidents kill people, um, we do it, uh, much more subtly. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I had to, I had to issue that rant. (laughs) I don't know. I feel, I, I mean, that's, that's, I've I've heard that, and I just feel like that's it's one of those times like you don't you don't really get what's going on if that's your problem. Right, uh, right, right. I mean, it's kind of like you know, yes, I realize that snakes don't have the you know lungs and the diaphragm to speak. That's not the point of Genesis three. <laughs> well, <laughs> if they had legs and were able to pull themselves off the ground, then you'd be amazed at what just how much water you know, like air they can get in. And, uh, <laughs> or or in one of my favorite uh, illustrated editions of Paradise Lost, if they could coil their body like a pogo stick and bounce up to Adam and Eve. Oh. <laughs> but anyway, now, now we've gone from uh, Machiavelli to Milton, and that's always dangerous around me, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, the 40-minute the excursus. Yeah, the, <laughs> there you go. Um, well, well, but the part about um, uh, uh, Doug that I find interesting is like it is not only did he kind of like defend him when it was like manipulating someone in recovery, like he knew enough about Doug to go the oh my mom died was no Doug serious he really needs his friend right now. Oh yeah yeah, and either those little bitty things where. Like little bitty acts like that throughout keep you going. Oh well, Underwood's not, you know, the evil emperor. He's more of like Darth Vader. <laughs> and 
and you're being forced into the Luke role, going like, I know there's good in you. Uh huh. Well, and the same goes for Claire, right? Because, you know, back to Michael Corrigan, when he commits suicide, again, I read that as a genuine shock and surprise to Claire because two scenes later, she breaks character at a an international press conference and tells off Victor Petrov. And, you know, on one hand, I want to say, okay, you know, what utter moral hypocrisy, you know, you of all people trying to claim moral high ground over anybody. But then on the other hand, it is one of those moments where something, and, I, and I'll use one of your your words here, Trip. I mean, there's a rupture in the Underwood mythology, and for a moment, there's a human being standing there behind that that microphone. Yeah, and 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 uh, maybe one of the things is, um, like those moments just seem so human mm-hmm. because, um, the show itself is comfortable showing you just how constructed and contrived most of us are. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like that part of it is true about us, even if we're not Frank and Claire. It's just they're on Front Street about how fake they are mm-hmm. and are aware of it. And or and at least they're doing to... it for the camera, right? And again, there's the Shakespearean element. But but even then, like, think of, like, the, um, the, the scene where they're practicing for the debate. Mm-hmm. And then all the conversations around the debate, like, uh, oh, well, you know, you could say this, or well, what about this? What about the private school? Um, and like they like Frank is very clear that he has no interest. Like the debate is a giant performance to win poll numbers. And like, they're voting on what word they should use. And, mm-hmm. oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. And he's setting up the other people so that he can humiliate them in public. Um, mm-hmm. And, and like you're watching it and, you know, he's at home in there and, and, but to me, it's like one of those, like, if you're watching, it's like a mirror and you're going like, now, do you take these things seriously when they happen? Cause this is really what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it and is, see, uh, it's funny. You keep saying this is really what happens. I mean, I, I, I feel bad outflanking trip fuller on the, uh, you know, postmodern file, but <laughs> What do you mean? This is what really happens. This is a construction of a construction of a construction. Yeah, that's yeah. What, that's it, it, what's it, so it, fun about it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, this is when if when you think of or just read any of the books on like uh, um, on the presidential campaigns, um, when they describe going into debates, it is like that. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Like you, you, there's nothing dishonest about their dishonesty. <laughs> um, you're watching what our politicians do going into debates. Uh-huh. It actually has you existentially experiencing a debate as the people who are playing the roles, right? As opposed or, or, to watch them. Or we're at least, uh-huh. you know, like I tweet through debates like it's a gladiator battle. Yeah. Um, and I watch it as someone uh, who's watching this this spectacle and assuming there's something about the human beings debating and what they say that corresponds to something they believe mm-hmm. um, or is true about them. When this, uh, what the show does is unpacks it just enough so that you are actually watching the debate thinking like, oh, well, what's Underwood going to do? Like he has these two people and he has them cornered against each other. Is he going to use this card? He set it up for this. Like you're watching the debate as a giant dance of rhetoric rather than anything about 
platforms or truth or desires or visions. Right. Even right. though vision was the word. Vision. All right, so I take back what I just said. I am going to outflank you on this one. I would say that what they tell in those memoirs is simply another performance, but the genre is no longer a presidential debate, but a tell-all memoir. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I, I want to say it's turtles, turtles, turtles all the way down. <laughs> oh, well, t- you know, the thing is, like, is there mutagen at the bottom? Because <laughs> that's, when, that's when things get interesting, is after they become ninjas. There you uh, go. Well, Tripp, I, I, I would not be able to live with myself if we didn't talk about my favorite scene from this season. Oh, I know. You warned me that it could go forever, so my thought was if I just make sure we don't get there for a while, you'll feel <laughs> obligated to uh, limit the discussion. <laughs> uh, well, let, let's see if your gamble paid off. But this is from episode 30, uh, and it's at the very end of the episode, and – Frank Underwood goes to what I take to be the National Cathedral, although it's been too long since I've been in Washington. I don't know if that's actually what it is. Uh, and he talks to a character called Bishop Edis, who's played by John Dahman, who was Frank Rawls, or not Frank Rawls. Ah, uh, I forget Rawls' first name in The Wire, but again, it's one of those crossover casting things that's just wonderful, because in The Wire, he is this utterly amoral character who cares only for his own advantage, and then they cast him as the voice of conscience here in House of Cards. It's, it's, it's glorious. But mm-hmm. in this scene, he has this conversation with the bishop, who, I mean, you know, to use one of the phrases that you and I both like to, like to throw around, uh, this guy is a chaplain to Pharaoh, right? Uh, mm-hmm. He says that, you know, he has given so many soldier funerals that he just reuses the same one. Uh, this is a guy who, you know, says that if someone's going to get killed, it's probably better that, you know, it's the people we work for who are doing the killing. He is not by any means this sort of, you know, uh, Francis of Assisi, and we might get to that later too, uh, sort of morally pure character. He is co-opted from the outset. And yet, once again, there's this rupture. I think he really speaks for a vision of reality and a vision of God that is entirely alien to Frank. So I could talk for 20 minutes. You're right. You tell me about this scene with Bishop Edis. Well, well, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe something, maybe you should set the context a little more because, mm-hmm. um, in the, in the scene, like Frank asked the Bishop about absolute power and God using fear in the old Testament. Mm-hmm. So like the, the setup for it, um oh and it's in the context right of him speaking around uh funeral right at Arlington yeah and so um and then the bishop says you know there's no such thing as absolute power for us except on the receiving end mm-hmm. using fear will get us nowhere um which you know the bishop clearly has no clue who Frank Underwood is mm-hmm. um Although, does he have no idea, or is he speaking prophetically? Or either one. But you're you're sitting there, when you hear it, you're like, hey, you're just challenging him. This is what this is. Well, like, yeah, Frank, yeah, it's Moses yeah. and the Pharaoh. So Frank <laughs> walks up to the statue of Jesus um, with this, like, uh, uh, um, you know, like, picture of, of Jesus and is going to talk to him. And he says, love, that's what you're selling? Well, I don't buy it. <laughs> and he spits on the face of Jesus. 
Right, right. And I mean, it, it's a it, it's a glorious scene because before that, when he has this conversation with Bishop Edis, when he poses that question about absolute power and fear, I mean, you just see the fire light up in John Dahman, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. says, there's no such thing as absolute power like you said, but then he said, all of those rules in the Old Testament, they can be interpreted a hundred different ways. This guy, and he points to the crucifix, told us there's only two rules that matter. Love God, love each other. That's it. And it's like, okay, he, he's, he's going to step to Frank Underwood. And he says, you know, if you think that you're in this for yourself, you're deadly wrong. You're here to serve the Lord, and you're here to serve the Lord so you can serve other people. And so again, I mean, we, the viewers, know that Frank Underwood has no interest at all in Jesus of Nazareth. He has no interest at all in loving his neighbor. He is the man of power. He is the Pharaoh. And yet this bishop steps to him and says, you are not the ultimate authority. The guy hanging on the cross there who told you to love God and love each other, he's ultimately the only one that you're ever going to answer to. Yeah. And then, like you said... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, like, in this scene, like when he goes up and he goes, love, oh, well, that's what you're selling. I don't buy it. And he spits on the face of Jesus. Um, He walks up to, like, wipe the saliva off the face. Then the whole statue falls, ground cracks up, breaks. And um, and then Frank goes, well, I've got God's ear now. Yeah. And then roll credits. (laughs) Yeah. And like the whole spitting on Jesus thing to me is actually parallel to his pissing on his dad's grave. Absolutely, like, yeah, roll with that. Well, the, the the first, I think it's in the first episode. The first scene where, of the first episode. Yeah, where he's like going to his dad's grave and no one's allowed to follow. And, you know, he's making it like a um, this uh, uh, heartfelt new president goes to connect with his father, whatever. But he like walks out there chews his dad out, says he can't believe he has to actually go into this town again and just pees on his grave. Mm-hmm. And, and so like when I, when I saw the encounter with the bishop, I'm thinking this guy is looking at um, whatever you like, like whatever thing like functions symbolically for uh, the law, be it parents or God mm-hmm. or the constitution he doesn't care about any of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so, but it's like he's had like those are not events simply for us to know that's how he feels. I think they're also like events where Frank's trying to trying to make sense of arriving where he never thought he'd get. Right. Oh Cause, yeah, yeah. Because there's a sense in which like. Half the way, to, half the way, our drive works is desiring things we never actually get to, and then it worked. So, what is this, What is the thing, the place that's going to drive him? And I think mm-hmm. it becomes the seat of the Father, and you know, symbolically, God. Oh yeah, yeah. Stand. Well, and what's great is both of these episodes happen very early in the third season. So, in the very first episode, he pisses on the Father. Three episodes later, he spits on the Son. And you spend the rest of the season waiting, okay, when is it that he's going to finally attack the spirit? I think, and you can tell me what you think about this trip, it's in the very last episode where he chokes Claire. Mm-hmm. I think that's his final renunciation of anything that should connect him to 
the life of love for his neighbor when finally he turns on the one person who has been with him that whole time, puts the chokehold on her and says, you know, my power is absolute. You are never going to defy me. That's when he basically says, you know, I am God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think that makes sense. And I, I think he, uh, um, it's, it is the, uh, um, uh, it's like the, the, uh, vestige of the anti-trinity. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and I wouldn't even say it's an anti-trinity, but I think it is Frank Underwood renouncing the Trinity dramatically. Right. Because, I mean, I can't think it's coincidence that you've got the father and then the son and then you wait the rest of the season for an act of violence against something else, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm overreading it because I'm an English professor. That's entirely possible. But, <laughs> I mean, that that's what I saw. I mean, I was waiting the whole season for something like that to happen. And then the last episode, he well, finally... Well, there's a surplus of meeting. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> the, the census plenier and house of cards. <laughs> <laughs> though, though, you know, pioneering uh, Trinitarian reader response theory might be your new thing. Uh, actually, I tried to do that in my uh, dissertation, so I <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah, but were you talking about Frank Underwood? That would really make it sell. No, I was not. I, I, that's what I should turn to next, perhaps. Uh -huh. well, anyway, I, I want to address a, a, a listener question. I believe this came in on your Twitter feed because... I read it and I said, I have no idea how to answer this, but this comes from uh, Micah Redding, and he says this, Discuss the priest as it relates to situation or utilitarian ethics. I resonated with it, but couldn't make it coherent. And I'll admit, uh, when I read that, it's not that I disagree, it's just that I never would have imagined Jeremy Bentham in here. Oh. Um, well, I mean, it, I mean, I think the the priest itself is uh, it's not so much a theory of ethics because um, I like there's not a whole lot of uh, specificity in a sense that the that the the priest is arguing it's not like he's looking at Frank going um, you know your utilitarian desire for power and accomplishment is uh, having you neglect these certain obligations you have towards your neighbor and then Frank you know looks back and goes well, what you don't recognize is the brokenness inherent in the situation. But within the situation, I'm trying to do the most loving uh, thing that's available to me. Um, no, they don't say I that. Think, <laughs> I think that. I think the bishop, the bishop, uh, aware or unaware, goes, um, uh, there is such thing as, as, uh, as ethics. And Frank goes, yep, I make them. And the, the bishop's like push at him is is one that just goes like you have some obligations to someone other than you mm -hmm. um and if you can't think of god at least think of your neighbor and uh and now that we know the trinity plays out in this series he can't even think of his wife yeah so there's no place that love holds him um uh responsible there's no place where the I mean you could even think of it in a eleven eleven Nasian term. Like there's no place the other calls at him. Like mm -hmm. he has no ears to hear the voice of the other. And so there's no recognition of of responsibility and things. Um because even thinking about that with Claire, like you wonder 
like what is his what is the re, the relationship of Doug going to be like after he was able to choke his wife? Because mm-hmm. Doug was like the few, like one of the times he you know lapsed into being human. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I think of it. I mean, I think the Levinas connection is certainly a good one. I guess I was thinking of it more in English Renaissance drama terms. I mean, Frank in seasons one and two was playing Richard the Third, right? He was climbing so that he could seize the crown. But now that he has, he discovers that he is not a king at all, but he's Dr. Faustus. And, you know, over the course of this season, I mean, I think he does renounce the father and renounce the son and eventually renounces the Claire. And, I mean, season four, I think, I mean, is going to be this, if, if I can just add one more extraneous literary reference, I think it's going to be his descent into Inferno. Now he has no anchor. He has lost the goods of the intellect and he has no reason to exist, so he's going to become this, you know, Miltonic Satan or this Agent Smith from the Matrix sequels, or, you know, he's going to be this character that has no good towards which to strive and therefore becomes a sheerly destructive and probably self-destructive force. Uh-huh. That's my prediction. I like your, I, I like your Freddy's prediction better, though. <laughs> well, America works. Like, <laughs> Um, the uh, the comeback of the America Works plan is, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, yeah. So, well, what do you um like when you're when you're um like having conversations with uh, people and the House of Cards comes up? Um, what is the what is the the conversation you feel that is uh, latent in the water cooler experience that um, that, that maybe is less than obvious to those of us uh, talking about it. Oh, goodness. Well, first of all, you got to remember my water cooler consists largely of humanities professors and English majors. So our our conversations probably aren't going to be nearly as uh, wide-ranging as a lot of folks. But one of the things I'm really digging about this series is that, you know, it provides opportunities to think about, okay, in what ways is literature mimetic, right? Because, I mean, one of the things when I talk about literary narrative, I want to go all the way back to Aristotle and say, okay, the literary artwork, and really even before that to Plato's Republic, now that I think about it, you know, the literary artwork is not simply a world in the same way that we exist in a world but rather it is a mirror held up to the world. It frames it in a certain way. It reverses certain things, but not other things. Uh, It basically looks back in the ways that we look in, right? So in that way, I think that the fact that this is a very, very stylized series, right, where you've got Frank Underwood talking to the camera, where you've got, you know, these policy ideas that, let's be honest, don't make much sense even in their own terms, much less if you try to make them analogous to actual American politics. Uh, those things, I think, are secondary to the strong psychological exploration here. And like I said, I mean, what fascinates me about it is that you've got these, what I think of as sort of Renaissance types playing out through this series, right? You know, first it's Frank Underwood as Richard Third, then it becomes Frank Underwood as Iago, and then it becomes Frank Underwood as Dr. Faustus. And I think, you know, what I've talked about with most people is, okay, where where can Frank Underwood go now that he has given up his soul? 
And if, you know, Christopher Marlowe is any guide, and, you know, I think Christopher Marlowe is usually a good guide, uh, what it means is his existence is going to become meaningless. So what do you think, Trip? I mean, I, I talk to mainly humanities types. You talk to a lot of seminarians. What are folks talking about over in uh, Claremont land? Oh, well, I mean, I, mean I, I don't actually spend much time over there anymore because I'm just, I'm just writing. So, okay, cool, cool. Um, I actually end up spending more time with actual, like, people that write for TV and things like that. All right. And what's interesting for them is uh, um, the intensity around the conversation is uh, built around the Netflix format that – um, oh, fascinating. Okay. So, like, you know how, like, if you were reading, like, a, if you're reading a good book, you just tend to rearrange your existence to immerse yourself in the book. Mm-hmm. But for most TV, that's not possible. Right. But now that Netflix has this experience of you enter the world and you're able to immerse yourself in the relationships. So a lot of the subtleties, a lot of the connections a lot of the excitement that you get in discussing um something like house of cards is um is connected to the fact that we can just jump into that universe mm-hmm. right it used to be we'd have to do it with what could happen in a film but now house of cards comes out and it's like getting an entire book and you're just binge watching it and you're jumping into a universe where there's so much more possibility for those that are creating it because they know the type of attention they're getting from the viewer. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the reasons I, I actually really like this kind of change in TV and, and distribution because um, just friends of mine that are writers love it. Like you're, you know that the people that are ready for it are taking your season like it's a, like it's a book. And they've been waiting for this author to put out a new book, mm-hmm. and they're going to ingest it, and they're going to be paying attention to those itty bitty details, like, um, like uh, coming up with trinitarian readings of, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all those type of things. Like, um, to me, I actually think that's one of the um, unique parts of of House of Cards. Isn't that these themes haven't been explored before, but it's rare that you have so many people in. Um, that are simultaneously immersed in this uh, in this big story. Right, right. And it's fascinating that you go that direction because, I mean, you just narrated my experience both with Sons of Anarchy and with Justified. Uh, you know, I came to both of those shows late, so the first three or four seasons, you know, Mary and I could watch an episode a night because we're old, we can't watch more than that, we don't do the binge thing. Uh, but then you get to the last season, we're dying to find out what happens, but we have to wait until the night after it airs so we can buy it on Amazon and find out, you know, what happens to Boyd Crowder next. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely a turn in the way that we receive those things. And also it's something that applies to TV more and more simply because of the, the means of distribution. Mm-hmm. Well, like, and even the idea that you are sitting with your, um, your uh, tablet watching it, which mm-hmm. a lot of people do for this is a much more like intimately engaging way is like holding a book versus, you know, uh, commercials interrupting, getting, uh, uh, sitting in a room with a bunch of people and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Tripp, let me ask you this question. I mean, what other TV series do you dig on that we can uh, do an episode on sometime? Because I had a lot of fun with this. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm a, I am love uh, Walking Dead inappropriately. Um, <laughs> I, I am very excited about the beginning of Game of Thrones again. Okay. I'm and, over two so far. <laughs> well, um, I'm trying to think of what uh, other ones I always watch. I love The Americans. Okay. It is... Uh, it is spectacular, and that's one you can catch up on because it was like they had this amazing first season. No one really got into it till it came out on Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. and then people were like, "Oh my goodness, this is great!" So it was like years off, and then they started. They just started season three, mm-hmm. uh, or they're in the middle of season three now. Um, I like. Um, I mean, I like all the comic book ones, but that's okay. the comic right. books. Not necessarily they're good at anything. Although it's I dig like, on Arrow. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, like, my favorite was Agent Carter of okay. the comic book ones, um, just because I think it was like she is the most powerful female figure in any of that Marvel universe, mm-hmm. and um, and who doesn't like random hook like connections between all the different Marvel <laughs> things? It's like everything fourteen year old Trip ever dreamed of. Oh sure, sure. Um. um I mean, the historical ones that were on, like, HBO and Showtime, I've liked, like, Rome, uh, Borg. Ah, the there's Borg, one that the, I've watched. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Tudors, Borgias, mm-hmm. all those things. Most of those I'm, okay. I enjoy. Well, tell you what, Trip, I'm going to issue this challenge to you. Uh, and this is not even remotely the most important reason to finish writing. But when you finish writing that dissertation, I want you to binge watch the heck out of the wire, and we'll oh. do an episode on that one. <laughs> okay. Because because you are a person I want to talk the wire with, so we'll go that direction. Well, Trip, I am going to have to prep for my afternoon class at this point. Unfortunately, I'm over in the Eastern Time Zone, and I'm watching the clock roll by until my afternoon literature class. Uh, do you want to have a a last word about House of Cards before we roll out, or do you want to just do the conclusion here? Um, I think every, I think um, it's it's definitely worth watching if for some reason you listen to this and have never watched it. There you go. <laughs> well, listeners, uh, this is a joint production of Homebrew Christianity and the Christian Humanist Radio Network. The it's a crisscross episode. It is. Uh, the intern for the CHRN is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, this is Nathan Gilmore signing off saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord, and Trip, you will have the last word. Um, brew on. <laughs>